Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, welcome to this IPR lecture event. I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the director of the Institute, and it's my great pleasure this evening to welcome Anthony Barnett to speak to us this evening uh, on the issue, what is the will of the people, England and Brexit? Anthony Barnett, uh, as many of you will know, has um, a long history of engaging as a writer, a thinker, an activist, uh, with important questions in uh, British politics, and in particular, our constitutional and democratic uh, issues as they face the country. Co-founded Charter 88, which in the 1980s uh, early 1990s was a very important and influential movement for uh, democratic reform uh, in the UK. Uh, he then went on to found and to edit Open Democracy, uh, which is a, a brilliant uh, publishing website, publishes material from all over the world, uh, and in recent weeks and months, as many of you will have seen, has led on some of the investigations, Adam Ramsey and colleagues leading on investigations into some of the dark money behind Brexit, so it's become an important, uh, as it were, actor um, in some of the politics of Brexit as we now experience in them. And Anthony has also recently published uh, The Lure of Greatness, a book about Brexit, Trump and the arrival in British politics and more widely of these sort of surges of discontent and how they've been channeled into, in our instance, the Brexit referendum uh, in the US into the election of Donald Trump. Um, he's here to speak about this question of the will of the people uh, and in particular with a twist on the question of England, I'll come on to that. Um, uh, this is obviously a critical time in the Brexit negotiations. Parliament will vote in less than a month, uh, if all goes to plan, in the next week or so in Brussels, on a Brexit deal. Um, and uh, there's obviously considerable opposition to that, but most of those most opposed to Brexit, uh, sorry, to staying in the European Union, ground their arguments in a concept of the will of the people. The people's will was expressed uh, when we voted to leave the European Union. 52% of the electorate uh, who voted, voted to leave the European Union. And that is deemed to be the will of the people and must be respected. So what is this concept? What is operative here in these questions of the will of the people, parliamentary sovereignty, popular sovereignty? And there's nobody better to speak to us than Anthony, who spent a lot of time thinking about these questions. And in particular, has also addressed the question of England. Uh, what is England's role in Brexit? Scotland voted to remain, Northern Ireland voted to remain, uh, England outside London voted to leave by large numbers as well as Wales and yet the question of England's place both in the Union and in the European Union is often under-debated, under-explored and that's something that Anthony's given a lot of thought to in the past so we've asked him particularly also to look at the question of England and its place uh, in Europe uh, uh, and its role in this whole Brexit debate. So with that introduction uh, complete I'm going to hand over to Anthony Barnett, there'll be plenty of time for questions and debate at the end. Anthony, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'm going to show a 30 minute, 30 second uh, video, um, but I just wondered, I thought we could open by asking how people voted in the referendum, if they, <laughs> if they did vote, if there may be people here from uh, the, the European Union who were not allowed to vote. Are there many, were there Europeans? Uh, well, thank you for coming for this. I, would, I hope we, I look forward to living in a country where you can vote, where we can vote together. Uh, were there, how many people here voted as I did to remain? Um, okay, so that's, and how many voted for, for Brexit? One, two, we've got, uh, usually there's a slightly more, but thank you very much for coming. 
Let's um, just start with this 30 seconds uh, uh, from uh, the Prime Minister being interviewed by, by um, Andy Marr. What's important about this Pursue is the that we, this, exactly. we, we recognise the concerns that people have about the role of Parliament. But there are two things I'm also very clear about, which is, first of all, that Parliament cannot tie the hands of government in negotiations. If you think about it, as we're sitting there negotiating uh, on the details of our future relationship or our withdrawal agreement, we can't have a situation where every time we have to take a decision, we have to go back and have a lengthy debate. And you know, Parliament can't tie government's hands in negotiations. But it's also important that Parliament cannot and should not overturn the will of the British people, which was to leave the EU. Well, she didn't seem very happy about that, did she? I mean, the will of the people. So recently, I, I gave a lecture uh, about Brexit at um, King's College in London. Uh, it, was, it was called Albion's Call. It was mainly about this English question, which I hope we'll come back to in the discussion. And after it, Nick asked me to take on the argument about England and Brexit further and address what is the will of the people. And I knew immediately that I'd have to agree. And you're very lucky to have Nick with you. Uh, he hones in, uh, and I've known him for quite a time doing this, on key concepts or ideas that are, or at least appear to be, driving the things you're talking about. And he brings you up with a halt and says, what's this about then? And it's extremely annoying and quite painful. But once the question has been put, there's no escaping the need uh, to answer it, especially if you're interested in causes, as I am. Now, in Brexit Britain, most people, most of us, are not very interested in causes. We're interested in blame in blaming the other side, in blaming Brussels, in blaming lies, in blaming traitors, in blaming the civil service. And there's a compulsive aspect to this. On both sides, it diverts attention from one's own share in the unfolding disaster. So one response to the claim that Brexit is the will of the people is to say, no, it isn't. The people are divided. The majority were tricked. Voters didn't know what they were voting for. Only 27% of the population actually voted for Brexit. The referendum was ill-conceived. Now, this is all true. And this last point, that is ill-conceived, I want to come back to. It was something I didn't understand fully at the time and on which I've had to change my mind. But all these objections kind of rerun the referendum. They deepen the divide that it revealed. Hence, the serious state of affairs that we now find ourselves in of incipient, if so far, I'm glad to say, largely peaceful civil war. The most striking visualization of this division was made during the final weeks of the referendum, when in the course of 15,000 interviews, the people were asked what mattered most to them, and their answers were mapped onto word clouds of their primary concerns. And the researchers found that where it says immigration, most, this was mostly articulated in terms of sovereignty. That's to say, it wasn't a racist opposition to foreigners, although there was some of that, but it was more an opposition to the 
perceived uncontrolled entry of foreigners. And if you look at this division from the perspective of Nick's question, what is the will of the people? Uh, at this point in time, you realize that something strange is going on. A fundamental choice is going to have to be taken over whether or not to leave the European economic area. The so-called hard Brexiteers, now calling for a no deal, want to be free of it, to, to, as they see it, carry out the people's decision to support leave. The government wishes to stay within it, but not be regulated by it, which is a pretty unsatisfactory solution, uh, but which they insist, as we've just seen, fulfills the will of the people. And a growing number of us, which I was an early supporter of the People's Vote campaign, are motivated by a perhaps overconfident <coughs> belief that the outcome of another referendum will be a full return to EU membership. All three positions claim in a way to be true to the people. All seek to represent the will of the country as a whole, and yet Britain has rarely, if ever, been so divided. Indeed, a recent important study by John Curtis shows that voters now define themselves more by how they voted. They define themselves more as leavers or remainers than they do as supporters of the Labour Party or the Conservative Party. And we can discuss why this is the case. So a gap has opened up between the language of the people in one country and reality. And this is a sign of the breakdown of the political system that's underway and also an expression of it, one in which we are all uncomfortably participating. And I include myself in this. Indeed, I thought I might even have to apologize for it because I want to share with you some of the pain and difficulties of this process over the next couple of hours. The approach I confidently took when I began to write this simply crumbled. And I had to tear up what I've drafted. So what's, what you're going to have is still a thought uh, in, in development. And I hope you will support me in this investigation. Because I thought maybe I'll be talking about Rousseau and the historical origins of the concept of the will of the people. But it became increasingly clear to me that our leaders have not read Rousseau. <laughs> We're not dealing with people who are trying to find a new way forward, who are searching with concepts. Rather, we're dealing with politicians seeking to prevent their universe from falling apart. So, I will start uh, with a question. Where does this phrase, the will of the people, come from in contemporary British politics? And I want to look at it at the beginning with the help of PowerPoint. And after that, because it's, uh, I'm going to switch simply to a less script, more scripted talk rather than using a, this PowerPoint presentation. And I use the phrase here, the notion phrase deliberately, as you shouldn't honor the words that are being used with the dignity of being concepts. The phrase is very widely found in newspapers and in conversations. Here is a provocative example of it, tossed out by the Daily Express. And here's an example of an everyday kind from last week's Cumberland News and Star that I came across doing a search on the web. 
The author of this letter is someone called Patrick Tracy, and he was writing about the Prime Minister. He said, it's time to bin this bumptious bungler in favour of a pair of safe hands who will deliver the will of the people, leave, and at no cost whatever, to the people of Great Britain. The bumbler-in-chief, though, as we have seen, got there well before Mr Tracy. She tweeted in December of last year, we will deliver on the will of the British people and get the best Brexit deal for our country. And again in September of this year. And we should note that almost immediately another tweeter, a Remainer called Nick Reeve, reposted with this counter-tweet. And uh, to the previous uh, tweet of the Prime Minister, Nick Reeves had written, the will of the people is a notion absolutely toxic to democracy, a device of dictators and demagogues that turns political opponents into enemies of the people. <coughs> so is it then a fascist concept? Are we witnessing a deployment of the general will with its revolutionary implications that ate the children of the French Revolution and, as we hear, is explicitly used to legitimate some Nazi Gleichschaltung, a melding or merging of all the institutions of the government and representation into a single militarised regime? I think not. Theresa May has used the phrase last year again, in a final to her SNAP 27 election campaign. Now this, in her keynote speech, was quite a generous vision that she set out 10 days before the vote. She described a plan for delivering on what she called the quiet revolution, implicit in Brexit, to improve people's lives. And she insisted I can just read this. It's a bit annoying reading out PowerPoint, but there we are. But all this depends on one thing, she said, getting Brexit right. And that's what's truly at the heart of this election campaign. This is the one fundamental defining issue, the choice on which everything else we care about will depend, because the terms of the deal we negotiate will begin to chart in the years after it the def definition of what our country is going to be for generations to come. And it was in this context, not a fascist vision, that she added that she would be delivering on the will of the British people to achieve this. But when she concluded her speech, she put it less emphatically. She said that hers is the only party that respects the people's decision. Now, there are numerous other, could fill an hour or two, casual and polemical uses of the phrase, almost all of the positive ones being from conservative politicians. But the slippage I want us to look at is from the grand and inclusive idea which encompasses a popular will to this much narrower sense of a particular decision that has to be respected. We can see the slide, this slide from the general to the narrow, 
going the other way at a particularly important moment when Theresa May's predecessor used the phrase, in effect, David Cameron was responsible for the notion of the will of the people in this context, as well as the referendum himself. In the House of Commons on the 24th of March, 2016, Cameron was asked, ironically, by the Labour MP, Pat McFadden, how the divisions in his party were going. And this is how he, what he replied. This country has to make a decision. It's not just about a political party. It's one on both sides. It's time for us as a country to have this debate, to look at the advantages of staying in, to look at the risks and make a decision. And I am clear about what this decision should be, but we cannot hold the country inside an organisation against its will. And it's time again to put this question to the British people. I will in campaign enthusiastically, he said, for remaining in the EU, not the least after the agreements that I've achieved, and it's for others to set out their arguments. As Democrats in the House of Commons, we should not be frightened of the will of the people. When he lost the referendum, he used the phrase again. This is from the BBC website, uh, which is covering the story of his resignation. These are the voting patterns. You can see very clearly this point Nick made out about the difference in Scotland and England uh, and, and Northern Ireland and on the map. Um, but there he is. The will of the British people is an instruction. Now, this, this has made, this reduces this general thing into a practical thing, instruction that must be delivered. And you can see the slippage that is going on here, made with all the casual indifference that is Cameron's hallmark, from the view of the country as a whole to the decision of a majority taken at a moment in time. An instruction. It's as if it was a simple outcome, a delivery notice, as if leaving the, Euro the European Union is like sending somebody a parcel. So what's going on? What is the conceptual universe that generates what I regard as slovenly claptrap? One source of the answer is to be found in another now retired prime minister. He also used the phrase about Brexit while opposing it. Tony Blair in February 2017, who made an eloquent case against Brexit and its surreal contradictions, but opened by saying he would accept the will of the people. And here it seems to me is a link from the referendum to the whole 21st century conceptual circus of what passes for British political thought. As I try and show in, in Your Greatness in the book that uh, and it was very kind about, it, it, I've got two chapters on David Cameron and it's a mistake to see him as a sophisticated old Etonian representing the continuation of an elite tradition of skillful government. His formative experience was not as a boy, but as a young man forged in the brutal world of London media public relations. When he became leader of the Tory party in 2005, the Sun's business editor, who was familiar with him, told his readers that he was a poisonous, slippery individual. While the Daily Telegraph's Jeff Randall 
wrote, in my experience, Cameron never gave a straight answer when dissemblance was a plausible alternative, which probably makes him perfectly suited for the role he now seeks, the next Tony Blair. And indeed, Cameron had already declared himself to be the heir to Blair. But as a mere facsimile, he never had the depth or acuity of the man that he and George Osborne called the master. So when Cameron refers to the people, he's indulging, I think, in a shallow, second-hand, recycled attempt at Blairite populism. Now, at its zenith, Blair reached out to unite the country around an ideology of globalization and market prosperity. At the decisive moment when he managed this, when he cast off the class politics of both the post-war Attlee years of so-called consensus politics, as well as the divisive topspin of Margaret Thatcher's conviction politics, was soon after he was elected in August 1997, with the death of Princess Diana. The notion of the people's princess gave the monarchy a demotic spin woven in grief. A monarchy which had been untouchable since Queen Victoria. And very soon, the quotation marks were dropped. And here we see the people entering our vocabulary. And this brings me, I'm afraid, with an unavoidable pun, back to our main topic. <laughs> if you'll allow me to keep a straight face, there are a number of different things that are going on in this country at the moment. And one thing we can do is position the democratic crisis of today's United Kingdom alongside the successful updating of the monarchy. First of all, I think this image answers my quest for where the notion of the will of the people comes from in the Brexit debate. It isn't rooted in any knowledge of Rousseau or even Hobbes, nor does it embrace a republican tradition. If you look back, thanks, did Harvard is now, the Hansard is now digitalized, so it's quite easy to do so to, for the use of the phrase will of the people. You see it crops up, not, not with intensity, but quite frequently in debates in the House of Commons, for example, in the 1920s uh, when they were debating Ireland. But the way in which it is used is as an expression of the approach of a, the, the entire government towards the empire which it controlled. And it was what that empire excelled in, which is the management of consent. And consent was understood, going right back into the 19th century, as the opposite of democracy. It was a shield from it. It prevented the rule of the unwashed by engineering loyalty. Its hard edge was to ensure that conditions did not become so intolerable that the population at large revolted. And its softer appealing side was to generate positive identification with the regime. Here, victory in war, rising standards of living, 
the organization of religion and education all contributed to the fundamentals of affiliation to a larger nation and empire. And at the pinnacle of this was the monarchy, justified famously by Badgett in the middle of the 19th century as the decorative element that diverted attention from the real machinery of the state. It was the keystone of popularity. And was the monarchy popular in post-war Britain at the birth of what was hailed as the new Elizabethan age? With the Queen's coronation in 1953, it was solemn, it was joyous, it was massive, it was military, and it was unequalled. This is managed populism. It is not that there were not enormous discontents in Britain at the time, inequality, hostility to the class system. But the establishment provided a mechanism for shared belief in the integration of discontent into a framework of well-organized deference. 44 years later, the daughter of one of the then courtiers to Buckingham Palace, having married the heir to the throne, found herself in an unbearable situation. She had outstripped them in her capacity to manage the media, but could not abide the confinement of the firm. I don't know if you realize the monarchy refer to themselves as the firm. She could not abide the, the confinement of the firm's routines. When her marriage broke up, the Queen announced it was Annus Horribilis. The monarchy ceased to be untouchable. And Diana herself denounced the royal family as the establishment in an unprecedented live television interview. She became the United Kingdom's first true populist. More so, I would say, we can talk about this with an Enoch Powell, who was an intellectual in a way that populists aren't. She was ill-educated but canny, an elite figure who denounced the elite, a master of the media who denounced media uh, uh, intrusion and, got, and, and ident made people identify with her as a victim. And they did. And when Diana died, the Queen at first refused to come back to London or allow the flag to, over, to be flown over Buckingham Palace and then lowered. And the first populist revolt took place. Looking back, it can be seen as a Brexit pre-shock, a shudder that revealed that the people had cast aside their deference and gained a determination. But from now on, they would define who was royal. And most important of all, if only momentarily, the people, I think you could say, exercised their will for the first time in British history. That's to say, three things took place. First of all, a majority large enough to be described as representing the sentiments of the people as a whole takes place. Secondly, they move independently from the governing elite and they do so against official policy until the regime bows before their wish. The force at large on the streets 
uh, not just in London, acting autonomously have an overwhelming majority in terms of consent behind them. Of course, many millions were not weeping in the same way, but most of those were not on the side of the cold-hearted monarchy either. Blair's perfectly judged response, anointing Diana as the people's princess, legitimated the revolt and allowed him to provide a replacement leadership for the regime, firmly advising the monarch to abandon royal precedent and concede to the wishes of her subjects or lose their loyalty, which she did. The establishment was no more and the political class, the political media caste that he headed, much narrower and more venal, was able to take control. But it was without the historic structures of loyalty that had secured the British ruling order through many stressful transitions. Indeed, the modernizers, and I was working with them, held many of those institutions in justified contempt. Now, this is where I think most of my PowerPoint uh, uh, presentation ends. I want to continue this argument, but I first want to just make a, a short digression because I think it, it relates to the rise of anti-elite sentiment that we have seen over the last few years, both here and in the United States. Fatally, for the new political media cast that he headed, Blair then committed it to a war which did not command the consent of the people and then lost that war. The political order he sought to create never recovered from this double disaster to the historic legitimacy of British self-regard. He could have reconfigured popular legitimacy if, if it had uh, lost a war that the population as a whole had supported to the hilt, as happened in Suez. Or if uh, he had won the war, which was initially regarded with skepticism, as Thatcher did with the Falklands but to have acted in defiance of public opinion and then lose was an irrecoverable folly. And it's one, of course, that Cameron was not responsible for, but he inherited that the ruin of that relationship of loyalty. You might ask, what's war got to do with it? In the current batch of studies of populism and the rise of the right and anti-immigrant mobilization and anti-elite sentiments, war is hardly mentioned. But populism and war are interlinked. And one way you can look at our current troubles is by seeing them as the result of Anglo-American societies as yet unable to live in peace. Societies which on the whole have found their clearest expression of the people's will in warfare. That was my digression, but I wanted to register that point. So let's go back to the uh, will of the people in peacetime. If you look at the way the will of the people has been used in the Brexit debate, you can see that it draws on, or attempts to draw on, this long tradition of manipulating consent built into Britain's historic tradition of democracy from above. Those running the show historically were so good at it, they never had to accept codified rules which they had to obey in order to get everyone else to accept them. Instead, conventions, gentlemanly behavior, fair play, ensured consent, and a peaceful transition between governments, which historically was an enormous achievement. 
while winner-takes-all electoral system ensured a decisive executive. But this only worked because, to use the, at the time, at the end of the 50s, of Conservative Prime Minister's Harold Macmillan's phrase, when he went to South Africa and addressed the apartheid regime, the establishment here bent with the winds of change. And you can regard the will of the people, in a sense, as an articulation of the breath of the winds of change. And when Cameron and others, like later, recognised the will of the people in the Brexit, they were acting, or rather play-acting, as traditional British rulers, seeking, seeking consent by bending, by not going along, not risking the rigidities and costs of confrontation, playing a long game. But while the royal family could pull this off to recover itself, as we have seen, the political media caste that we have was not sufficiently rooted to hold its ground when it has tried to bend before the demands of change. And perhaps because they approached the referendum through focus groups and public relations advisors, they saw it as simply being something like the choice of a product. Hence the notion that the will of the people is merely an instruction. Now, we've heard the Prime Minister use that term in this way, echoing Cameron, and for her, it has special prime implications because she's always presented, rather deadeningly in my view, her strength as being that she's somebody who just gets on with the job. So we see here that the will of the people, which has this enormous, the, the Brexit has this enormously important uh, question which she rightly sees as shaping the nation and the country, is now being used, is now being followed in this limited, narrowing fashion. Now, how is this possible? And I want to explore this and try to answer this question in a way that strikes what I think is the false promise of Brexit in the first place. Its original sin, if you like, that has condemned it and this country to failure. So the way I can put the question is how is it that a phrase that should be gloriously expansive and inclusive, and as we see in a certain way has been in this country, has become narrow and mundane and almost technical. Something that we have to get on with and do with a gloomy face, as you saw in the Prime Minister, those who came in late won't have seen it, in the 30-second clip of her interviewing, I've got to implement the will of the people. The phrase, the will of the people, has two obvious component parts, which I'm now going to try and separate. And one of them is will, the will, and the other is the people. Most attention, and I'm going to pay a little bit of attention to this, has been paid to the latter. Who are the people? In what way are they constituted as an agent? What do they want? This too is about the people. And in these discussions, the notion of the will is generally taken for granted which it should not be. So first, and briefly, the people. There is no such thing as a people in the political sense that we're using without a nation. Indeed, the most recent, the most recent book on this by Roger Eatwell and Matthew Goodwin is called National Populism. Odd as it may seem, the book says nothing about the actual national question that determined the outcome of the UK's referendum except that it isn't odd, 
It's par for the course for the whole Brexit debate among English intellectuals and commentators, whether sympathetic to Brexit or not, is that they find it almost unbearable to think of themselves as English and their country as being England. In this case, the case of these two authors, for example, they write about the historic British suspicion, I'm quoting, of European integration. And then they add in parenthesis, it would be more accurate to describe it as English. And then they close the parenthesis and do not discuss this rather important point. And indeed, in the entire book, there is only one mention of Scotland and Wales, which is a passing mention in terms of the disintegration of traditional political parties by noticing that they are witnessing the rise of nationalist parties. But they don't ask why these nationalist parties, unlike many nationalist parties in Europe that they do talk about, support, strongly support, EU membership. Now, when the uh, uh, leaders of Brexit then, deploying the will of people, turned it onto the dead wood of parliamentary sovereignty, they lit a fire under Britain. And we'll just take a look here. Wigan, north of Manchester, and Paisley, south of Glasgow. Both historic industrial centres suffering steep post-industrial decline. Both with young women MPs, Lisa Nandy and Maria Black, who are articulate, thoughtful, and support, strongly support, or supported staying in the EU. And in the referendum, both Wigan and Paisley had the same high turnout for deprived working-class towns of 69% as they delivered their verdict on their experience of powerlessness. But as you can see, they also had near-identical 64% majorities in the referendum, but they were mirror opposites in their conclusion. And the explanation for this is undeniable. Scotland voted by a massive 24% majority to remain. England without London voted by 11% for leave. And because of its size, England without London took the kingdom with it. So Brexit is English. And the English, most of the English who voted for Brexit are largely indifferent to the union with Scotland and Northern Ireland. Polling has shown they would rather, they, they went off, they left, they broke up the union uh, rather than seeing England subordinated or rather the countries they experienced to the EU. But the political leadership of Brexit, whether ultras like Boris Johnson or Theresa May herself, are Westminster Britishers through and through. This is what gives them meaning in the world. The loss of the union would for them be a political catastrophe. May in particular, sensing the threat, gave safeguarding the union as the first reason why she opposed leaving the European Union before the referendum. And she made preservation of quote, our precious union, her number one objective when she became prime minister after it. So she has to insist that the country made one decision, that it will leave as one country. 
She cannot allow the autonomous political existence of different peoples, even though they may have different governments. The UK is not a nation. It is a multinational entity. The crucial force that generates the people's will is when there is one, a shared sentiment as to who we are. When this is distributed with such sharply differential effects among four different people in the archipelago, we are facing a national problem. But this is one of the drivers that has resulted in the brittleness of this claim that Brexit represents the people's will. It is an attempt by representatives of the central institutions to insist that they represent all the constitutive nations. This is a, a, a society has no constitution which enables those nations to identify with it. In contrast to India, India has many different nations within it, but they share the same constitutional political framework and identify with us. So now only a vote that took place two and a half years ago has to stand in for the country as a whole. Meanwhile, as we can all feel, a constitutional unwinding is underway. And far from expressing a popular driving way forward out of this mess, the will of the people has become part of the problem, binding us to the past. The only short-term solution to this, and it's, as I said, it's one I support, is a people's vote. Yet that also, the notion of a people's vote, salutes that Diana moment, but is seeking that kind of an energy. And it's advocated by those of us who wish to reverse Brexit, and for some of us, and this is why I think we should have more of this in the discussion, as a starting point for the creation of a better and more democratic country. So I think we need to take the notion of, of take back control, the democratic impulses that are behind that, to put parliamentary sovereignty out to grasp. But this can only succeed if England gains its own form of parliament or expression. We don't have to put Britain behind us, that may be one outcome. But if we want this country to remain part of the European Union, England has to find its democratic voice. We have to reimagine the kind of country we are in. And that reimagination will take us back to becoming a normal European country. So the first part of my answer as to why the will of the people as a concept is so brittle and uninspiring is it can't be honest about the people who we really are. It's an attempt at enclosure, at preventing the free expression of the national democracy that it pretends to represent. It doesn't liberate them, it chases the ghosts of Great Britain. But there's a second, and I think as important a reason for the uninspiring nature, the broken, the confining nature of the phrase, which we can identify if we take, if we look not at the question of the people, but at the notion of agency, at the notion of will. And this goes back to the nature of the referendum itself. When he was preparing opinion for a referendum at the end of 2015, Cameron said, as you can see, let's be frank. Now, that's often a sign that self-deception is underway. 
Britain is an amazing country. We've got the fifth biggest economy in the world. We're a top 10 manufacturer. We've got incredibly strong financial services. The world wants to come and do business here. The argument isn't whether Britain could survive outside the EU. Of course it could. When Cameron announced the referendum itself on the steps of Downing Street, he said, I think it was a fatal moment, I do not love Brussels. I love Britain. I will never say our country could not survive outside Europe. That's not the question. The question is, will we be safer, stronger and better off? These are all terms carefully honed after focus groups and so on. Will we be better off working together in a formed Europe out on our own? You will decide and whatever your decision is, I will do my best to deliver it. Now Cameron posed the question in entirely simple and instrumental terms. Do you want we can leave. Do you want to leave? It's not a good idea, but if you want to, you can. Do you want this product or that? Do you want the cheaper version or the more expensive version? It's up to you. Simple choice. Now, if you're a Remainer, as most of us are, I think we could say, who thinks that it's shocking that a third of voters are willing at this moment to support a no deal and just crash out, who are opposed to carrying on any more of these negotiations, and are horrified by the reckless nature of the Brexiteers who support this and the cynical attitudes that lie behind it, then we think of this. The original politicians who put the option of just leaving on the table were our side. They were the Remainers. The way in which the decision was put to the electorate by the government that called the referendum and controlled the Remain campaign was that it was a straightforward in-out decision. The attitude of, well then, let's get on with it, that is expressed in the notion of carrying out the instruction of the people's will is rooted in this original fatal offer. And the way the Remain side, our side, fought the referendum from the start. Today it's exploited there? Yeah, by, by, by Brexiteers, for example, Melanie Phillips in yesterday's Times, this is a very up-to-date lecture, the people did not vote in the referendum for any kind of deal or none, she says, they simply voted to leave. If that's not now honoured, the damage done to the Conservative Party and democracy itself will be immeasurable. And she's right in this sense, the historic, I'm sorry to say this about uh, uh, Melanie Phillips, who I detest. She's right in this sense, the historic call was presented by the government as a simple act of will. Will, because it wasn't presented as a mere or trivial choice. Its importance was registered and effort was needed, but its practicality was presented as simply straightforward. Do you want to buy a share in the house or do you want to sell it? It was not in the first instance, I'm repeating myself, but I think this really need to drive this home. It was not in the first instance the Leave side, but the government defined and, the con the confined and controlled the Remain campaign, which offered the decision to the British voters in these terms. However, they are simply inappropriate. They ignore the realities of EU membership and the historic changes that modern society has undergone since 1950. And this it helps us to explain why the will of the people is being used now to impose an outcome on us that is not consensual. On the Leave side, I think I'm going to have to leave this dreadful quote from Melanie Phillips up there. On the Leave side, 
Brexit was described and explained by its leading advocate, Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail for a quarter of a century, now fortunately retired. Um, uh, it was defined as, by him as the expression of a deep-seated human yearning to recover our national identity and independence. He too saw it as a simple choice that could be undertaken, if one in his case to break free from the chains that were tying us down. Had it been so, Brexit would have swept a growing majority into its bosom after its referendum success. Instead, even though May herself, channeling Dacre, saw it as a vote to restore, as we see it, our parliamentary democracy and self-determination, it has become not a warm, growing movement for a collective desire, but in an instruction, rigid, commanding, dull, we're going to get on and deliver the will of the British people. But if the Remain side were wrong to offer Brexit as a simple choice, the Leave side were, and are, more profoundly mistaken in accepting it as a simple choice. They presuppose that democracy and sovereign self-government demand control of one's life and laws. And the most fluent exponent of this, this is the last part of my argument if we can get to the discussion, is Boris Johnson. And this is the headline, very conveniently, for this argument uh, in yesterday's Daily Telegraph. He has just denounced the withdrawal agreement as a form of colonial rule. In a new book which has just, just come out by Fintan O'Toole, a wonderful Irish writer, called Heroic Failure, Brexit and the Politics of Pain, he engages with what he sees as a pathology of victimhood which has gripped Anglo-British nationalism at its heart and that motivates the likes of Johnson. But I want to look at something else here. I want to take seriously his assault, or try to take seriously, his assault on the withdrawal agreement in this article. And I'm going to read it out, painful though it may be. No matter how strongly the people of Northern Ireland may want to tighten rules, says Johnson, on live transport of animals, it won't be possible because all that is governed by EU directives. And on page after chop-smacking page, it is explained that the people of UK, Northern Ireland, must obey EU rules on everything from lawnmower noise to the description of preserved sardines to the use of personal recreational watercraft to trading coins or tokens that may be deemed to resemble a euro. And of course, it's not just the people of Northern Ireland, this is where the national question, who are turned into captives by this appalling sellout of a withdrawal agreement. Those who drew it up knew that if they could hold Northern Ireland hostage, then the rest of the United Kingdom would remain locked in as well. They knew that no British Prime Minister could accept the legal division of the UK. This is nonsense, because there is already a legal division between uh, uh, most of this country in Northern Ireland, and thus the whole country has been trapped in economic and political servitude. An assumption is at work here. This is that the requirements about the impact of the lawnmowers on our noise environment, or the honesty of reporting on the content of the oils which preserve the fish we eat, are a defining aspect of our sovereignty and self-determination. That if we, 
are not in control of such matters ourselves, then we have foregone, in Johnson's words, a thousand years of history. Now, one objection to Johnson's argument is that preserved fish that we eat may well come from Portugal, and probably do if they're sardines, and the mowers may well be manufactured in the Czech Republic by a German company, and if you want Brits to make mowers or sell preserved foods, then what's wrong with sharing the rulemaking about whether we can be deafened by our neighbours or poisoned by supermarkets? Now, this is right, this is an important argument, but it needs to be put not at the practical, but at the same level. We need to take on, Johnson, that argument, at the same level of generality. Because something more fundamental is taking place, which explains why millions of us, who are not especially interested in questions of sovereignty, I mean, I am, but most people are not, and have no great liking for the institutions of Brussels, nonetheless feel very strongly that they are part of the European space or the European economic area, even if they would not, or at least not yet, use such an expression. Now, I have developed this argument at some length, I'm afraid, in open democracy. And I'm going to put it very curtly here. Over the last half century, regulation has become a new branch of government alongside the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. It's linked to them, just as they are linked to each other, but it's also a parallel, ongoing form of government. And as such, it's become an essential part of our lives as citizens. And it has created a consumer-style expectation of the role of the state in our protection. Regulation has become an essential requirement to manufacturing and many services, along with the growth in the dangers and costs of science-based commodities and the all-pervasive digital services, alongside rising public expectations for safety and privacy. You can think of this in terms of our bodies, how we relate to political power, in terms of the medicines we want to have to, to know what's in them, the, the cleanliness of our beaches, the safety of our cars, or our, that our lawnmowers don't deafen us. Or in terms of metadata and the security of the information about our persons. You can also look at it, just to get this point in, from the point of view of manufacturers. For example, the United Kingdom's chemical industry wrote to the government, wrote in particular to Michael Gove, explaining the need for regulation. Indeed, it says CIA, but it's the Chemical Industries Association. Um, indeed, it demanded it. This is on the page two of the letter. It's worth reading this because this is the sort of thing which is never replied to by the Brexiteers. This is the country's most largest manufacturing export earner demanding regulation because of the hazardous nature of the materials it's dealing with for its workers, customers, and communities. And then it insists that it can't afford to be regulated twice. Now, this form of regulation is not like ordinary legislation. It's ongoing, it adjusts to developments in science, to new information, or about the impact of new commercial substances. The EU, for all its pretensions to high sovereignty and becoming a traditional power, 
is in fact very weak in this role, thanks to the jealous nature of existing national democracies, not least France and Germany. But the EU itself, underneath, if you like, the Cinderella activity, not the high table of all this sort of Brussels stuff, but in the 34 different agencies that the EU runs, has developed 11,000 regulations, tens of thousands of standards, and is continually making decisions about the safety of the substances which rule our lives. And, and this is very important, it's very popular. Since the creation of the single market, in which the British played a considerable part in the 1980s, the European Union has become a regulatory superpower. And it is one that the country cannot leave. This is the lesson that Theresa May learnt from her civil servants, and Michael Gove learnt as well, going through the facts and the evidence and concluding, as she did in the Chequers proposal, that we have to share the common rule book. Unless, of course, you're Boris Johnson, and we know what Boris Johnson thinks about business. But this was a, a uh, uh, he meant it. Uh, uh, Ian Duncan Smith made, a, made, made a, a speech saying, you know, the car industry is only 0.86 value added of our economy, so we don't need the car industry. They're going to make a fuss about it. Chemical industry. We don't need a chemical industry. But is, so the regulation is, is, is very popular. It's very essential. Uh, but is it, and it's not, I would say, the, the, the nature, it's not, a, it, it's not the same as sovereignty in the historic sense that we associate with it in terms of the rise of our own democracy and self-determination. So one could put the question this way too. Boris and company. Did the British fight Hitler because he threatened to impose quieter lawnmowers and safer sardines? And Brexiteers argue that membership of the EU's regulated space annihilates our ancient liberties and turns us into captives. But the reality is that shared regulation makes us safer and freer and enhances our democracy. Now, there is a real argument about self-determination in the European Union when it comes to the euro. And I'm a strong critic of the Lisbon Treaty, which I think was in itself a kind of conspiracy against democracy, given that the fundamentals have been voted down in referendum by the French and by the Dutch. But this is an argument we should be having about the way we are governed in our continent. But as important, also there are kind of big new questions about the nature of regulation, which, which is how do we make all this regulation democratically accountable? That's something we should discuss afterwards. But there are important ways in which we need to own the processes of regulation that are taking place. It can't be done in terms of parliamentary legislature. Just look at all of the activities that are taking place. So how can it be done? And the fact the European Union hasn't done it is one of the reasons people don't identify, it's popular, that they don't identify with it as something which is part of our political life. But people know that we have got to have it and they want to keep it. The claims about the will of the people and national sovereignty don't touch these realities. And in that sense, they are redundant. 
So banging on, if I can use that phrase, about the will of the people is disconnected in some way to our actual lived experience of democracy and our own lived relationship to public power. And this is one of the, this is the sort of second reason why the phrase seems so brittle and peculiar and out of touch. It's always dangerous, this is my last point, but I want people to try to understand this is a kind of novel area which I don't think has been discussed yet. Um, and I say, I've been trying to look for sort of a metaphors which could help us to understand it. Now, it's always dangerous to compare the public power to an individual sovereign, to a person, despite Hobbes's famous uh, uh, image. Uh, but there is an analogy which will help me to get across, perhaps, the argument I'm trying to make. Notions of sovereignty and self-determination, the Boris Johnson arguments, if you like, the Brexiteers one, are about conscious decision-making. Who is the boss? They're about high politics and sovereignty and the enforcement of policy, and we're usually backed up by force. And there is, of course, a romance and, and, and sometimes the reality of authority about going about applying reason. I heard a civil servant the other day, a senior civil servant, talking about what it was like being in what he called welfare politics, applying reason, working out the policies that would maximize your returns, maximize the wealth of people, try, having the nerve and struggle against resisting forces who impose those policies. And that is a matter of power and how you apply it. And we can all identify with that process because it's, it's our, in a sense, our own mental process. You know, I lift my hand, I form a fist. I open my hand to, to uh, have, make a friendly relationship. All these are conscious, they're carried out by me. But there's another network of consciousness in our bodies, which is not subject to our will or our deliberation in this fashion, but is nonetheless in constant reaction to the environment, external environment and our internal biological environment. And this is our hormone system. It decides, so to speak, as the women here will know, about our periods, about our reproductive cycle. It adjusts our heart rate. It oversees our body temperature. It manages our digestion. It's our internal regulatory system, complex, ongoing, and not subject to our conscious will. And as modern societies have become far more complex, interrelated, and science-based, so regulations have been developed as a kind of hormonal system. This is the fourth system adding to the other three to preserve and enhance our lives. And this is what we achieved as part of the European Union with the single market. And we can't leave it, except a great painful and unnecessary cost. And if we did, we would then have to recreate our own regulatory system all over again. So it's not holding us back. It does not undermine our sovereignty or make us captive of a foreign power. And this means, this is my final point, that there was never such a thing as a simple choice of staying or leaving the EU. The offer of a referendum, I mean, I supported there being a referendum, so this is partly changing my own mind, but the offer of a referendum was a false prospectus. And so, too, is the idea that the will of the people can reverse it. So, on the contrary, we are becoming, we are becoming, this is what, part of what the larger human uh, experience is about, a different kind of people in respect to everyday life in times of ongoing peace. And this is why 
in one way or another we will remain in the European Union and why the will of the people belongs at least in part to a previous age. Thank you. Anthony, thank you so much. That was a, a wonderfully rich and interesting and challenging lecture. Thank you very much. Um, we have some time for questions and discussion um, for those of you who are, who are going to stay. And if you just put your hand up, I'll, I'll call questions and say who you are. That'd be great. And I'll, I'll start over here. Yeah. Um, I think this question of regulation is much more complicated than it looks on the surface. Uh, there's no question we need it. from a country where many of the agencies that are supposed to regulate industries have been subject to industry capture. And once you have these mechanisms for... Subject to what, sorry? Uh, industry capture. Capture, yeah. Where the organizations making the regulations are no longer even pretending to make them on behalf of the public, but are making them on behalf of the industries they're supposed to regulate. And I suppose the larger the region that comes under a unified regulation, uh, the larger the potential disaster if that, let me just say, falls into the wrong hands. Yes, this, this, perhaps you pick this point up, Anthony, because Brexiteers do argue, don't they, that, uh, um, that European capitalism is, a, is crony capitalism, it's defended by the rules that uh, frame the single market, they, it inhibits new entrants, etc., etc., uh, and, and their model of mutual recognition of regulations allows new entrants, it prevents the big multinationals kind of carving up markets and so on. So I suppose, it's, sub, further to the gentleman's point, you know, is there a danger that resting on a particular regulatory regime, as it were, uh, ties you to a specific form of economic uh, organisation or practice? Yeah, so the, 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 that's a, there are two levels of questions there. So the, um, the first thing I said, there's a really the big issue about how we democratise, how we make regulation answerable to us. Um, so you could take two examples from the European Union of successful regulation and disastrous regulation, regulatory capture. The successful one was the introduction of car safety, when the Commission in the end of the 90s recommended uh, improvements in car safety which were basically written for them by the big car manufacturers. And the European Parliament, driven by a Labour MEP, insisted that things like airbag safety, bag, much, much more rigorous uh, bumpers that don't kill people when pedestrians and so on, all things which do, do not happen with American cars, were insisted on the European Parliament and voted overwhelmingly, I think almost unanimously for this. These regulations were imposed by the end of the 90s. And since then, car deaths have gone down from about 45,000 a year to 20,000 a year. So, this has saved a great deal of lives, and the European car safety regulation has been an enormous success, driven by, by the powers of Parliament, which were installed by the Maastricht. On the other hand, you have Dieselgate, and Dieselgate where basically the manufacturers persuaded the European Union that they could measure their own emissions 
and then they fixed it. And so you have a situation where Volkswagen and so on have been gassing people around the world, and only a kind of oddball American researchers who actually then sort of got hold of a Volkswagen car and drove it up and down the West Coast and discovered that the emissions had simply gone off the, uh, simply you know, got, got completely through the, through the sky, and they blew, blew that situation. So there's a very serious issue here, right? and I'm not, which I wouldn't deny for a moment, but it's actually at the center of what kind of people we are and what kind of society we're in, and so we need to start from the essential need for regulation and then the need to make regulation answerable to us. There's a big difference between the chemical industry in this country and that in the United States is under Trump has just written legislation saying um, that the rules for toxicity do not apply, apply may continue to apply in factories but no longer apply to substances that they dump in, in the larger environment. So you, and one of the big issues underneath the argument about European regulation and mutual recognition and so on, which Nick is just talking about, is that I do think the, the, the reason why we need to take no deal seriously is that the no dealers are looking for a deal with America. It's significant that David Davis went to the United States and said, I can do a deal here. And, and Trump, it's not that Trump is interested in England or Britain, it's that he regards, and he has said on the record, as regarding the European Union as a foe. And he regards European trade policy as hostile. And when asked, he was asked originally about what he thought about Putin, and he said he thinks the European Union, when it comes to trade, is, is his real enemy. And it, it goes back personally, I think, to the fact they wouldn't allow him to have a deregulated golf course. But, but, there's a, but there is a group around the Trump regime, you know, they want, they want allies against Iran and so on. <clears throat> and so the, for, for a group of people well-funded from the United States who are pushing for, if you like, the Reese Mogg group, for them, no deal is not a failure, it's a victory. And that's a victory which pushes this country towards a deregulated capitalism. And this is a point, I mean, I don't... don't agree with this, the way he treats the issue of Europe, but it's a point that Corbyn and the Labour Party have, were on to very early and have made very consistently. Now, it then follows, okay, we are therefore in what you might call the terrain of reality, which is European capitalism, and, and there's a big argument there about how we then ensure that that regulated space is answerable to us. Um, but that's an argument that we can't leave, and my point is simply to say that we have to be really confident in understanding the nature of what contemporary sovereignty is about. The fact that regulation is not an add-on, it's not about bananas, it's not about lawnmowers or sardines, it's actually about our health and our environment and our safety. It's very popular and we have to be able to articulate what that's about and why it's essential to our lives and then we can start to have an argument about how we, how we organise it. Okay, so gentleman at the back and then down here. Yeah. Can you shout just so because I'll yeah, take sure. Yeah, yeah right. I'll, I'll try my best. Um, towards the end of your talk, the kind of critique of will of the people blended into a critique of Brexit and you know defense of regulation. But do you think you would have the same critique of the will of the people if Remain had won? Um. Uh, well, I. Th 
this is a very uh, a good question. I think that the um, the one aspect, and this is something which I, uh, Nick and I went on about at some length in my book, which was written quite very early, written last year, published last year, is that the argument that was the instinctive argument in the Leave campaign by Brexit voters who felt they were asked, do you want the system we have to carry on? And they said no. But that reply was justified. And the, uh, the, the one of the reasons that we lost is because we, the Remain campaign was run as a status quo campaign. And one of the reasons why we could lose a people's vote for thy season welcome, sort of, you know, yellow star, so which I'm very happy about, is that if we run a people's vote as being about going back to the status quo 2016, we're also likely to lose that, and for good reasons. So I think that the, uh, the impulse underneath that vote for, of saying um, we don't want to carry on as we are is justified. There's a, there's a coherent justification to that, which we need to take on board. And I think that the, it, it, I, I think if we'd won, and there would have been a sense in which if Cameron had won and Mandelson had won and Stronger In had won, I don't think they would have justified it in terms of the will of the people. I think that they, and if they had, I certainly would not have accepted that any more than I accept this one. Oh, hi. Um, so I'm from the EU, I'm from Estonia. Um, I lived in this country for kind of like four years and when I moved here and the EU vote was, I was very kind of like, you know, supportive of the Remain campaign for obvious reasons. But recently I've started to doubt it a lot because, I mean, the EU is not really a great institution if you think about it. It's a hugely technocratic, it's very undemocratic, it kind of like, you know, um, it's a very neoliberal institution. And when you talk about regulation, I'm just wondering, can't you see, don't you think that the regulation is also there for the maintenance of neoliberal capitalism? And therefore, if we want like an honestly left government with radically left policies, then to a certain extent, those two things are contradictory and we couldn't have radical policies such as the collective ownership fund under the EU. So I'm just wondering what you think about that. Yeah, uh, so, well, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, regard myself as on the left, I'm on the left, definitely, and I certainly don't regard the European Union as it's now constituted as a uh, left-wing space. But the, the only way in which it can be changed, and the only way in which we can get a progressive European countries, is by countries across Europe joining together and people across Europe joining together to change the framework by which we're governed and leaving it, leaving the European Union, especially given the forces that are supporting leaving the European Union, is an intrinsically right-wing project which will make matters worse from the point of view of regular working people in this country. So it's, it's, there, there isn't any way out of, it is the terrain of reality. And, and uh, you, it's, it's like saying, well, look, if you're, if you're I don't know about government, Sony, but if, if you're in Westminster and you know, you've got the House of Lords, which is very right, but you've got a very right-wing government, I'm going to leave the country. Well, fine, you can emigrate, right? That is, but that, where are you going to emigrate to? If the, 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 
the, the problems with the European Union, which, as I said, the Lisbon Treaty, I regard as a conspiracy against democracy, but that, that we have to do something about that together. And the only force which will be able to do it is people across Europe working together. So we have to be in there to change it. And leaving it also, and this is another aspect of the, the so-called Lexit argument, which I think is the important one, you've seen in the, the withdrawal agreement that the, the, the strictures against state aid are extremely strong. So the idea that, say, a Jeremy Corbyn government outside the European Union could proceed as it wished in terms of, uh, uh, it's of, of nationalization or state subsidies is completely false. Because the moment that it did, the moment that it did so, the European Union would say, sorry, you are, you are breaking the terms of our agreement and you can't even export to us. And at least if you're inside the European Union and you start to break its rules, you've got space to argue. But if they're controlling your customs, if, they're control if your commitment is to staying inside the customs union to keep jobs, then you're more under the power of the European Union but rather than less. Unless you wish to break free altogether and join Trumpland. So, I mean, it's a hard position to be in, but we, you know, there's, no, there's not an easy way out of that. I hope that answers your question. I'm sorry if I disappointed you. <laughs> Could I just reinforce your point about <coughs> regulation? Because something that we unconsciously accept worldwide is air safety. And air safety is regulated by two bodies, the European Air Safety Organization and the FAA in, in America, who do not fight but cooperate. And so we have a worldwide system of regulation that has actually produced a worldwide very, very safe uh, pro, uh, uh, system. Yeah. There was a crash two weeks ago of the latest Boeing 737, which had a malfunction or a badly designed piece of software, and it killed 189 people in Indonesia. The whole world has reacted against or to rectify that problem. If we did not have such a regulatory system, which is accepted by everybody, we would be completely um, divorced. And there's a, a argument yeah. going on at the moment. Every Airbus that's ever flown has a wing that's designed in Bristol and manufactured just outside Chester. And the Brexiteers are saying, well, you know, we'll have our own airworthiness authority and regulate that. And the Europeans are saying no. So what's going to happen? You know, we're going to have to accept it. So I think your idea about, or your thesis about the common regulation is a very, very powerful force. But you see, I think there are two things here. One is... I'm saying we have to accept it, right? We need to participate in something which is good for everybody. And the point about air safety, to get back to the gentleman over there, is I think one of the reasons why where air safety is so good is that very rich and very powerful people can't buy their way out of, out of it. So they can buy their way out of medicines, and they can buy their way out of whatever, the food, and they can buy their way out of... You know, they can, they can go and live in New Zealand if they want to live somewhere which is, you know, away from all of the, the environmental catastrophe. But they, their children, they can have their own little private planes, but their children will fly on aeroplanes. And they are not going to let their children crash and die. And, it, you know, it matters to them. And because the system, the highest system of power, it really affects them, Aeroplanes extremely well regulated, and if the wealthy people running the American chemical industry were living in the towns where the toxic stuff was being dumped, it wouldn't be dumped there. 
So we, we do need to, to reflect on that, but also have the fact of saying, well, th that aircraft have set, shown that these standards can work for everybody, and this should be uh, a, something which we can all achieve, but we can't achieve it by walking out of... Oh, hello. Um, I'm a French national. I've lived in this country for 30 years, paid my taxes, raised so my you're children. You're from where, sorry? I'm French. French. Right. Great. And I'm now Wonderful. considering Thank paying you. over a £1,000 to become British just because, you know, everyday life is becoming more and more difficult. So people who are from the European Union at the moment, like me, um, can no longer, you know, file their tax return online unless they go through all kinds of hoops. Um, which most people don't know. So when you said at the beginning, you know, the result of Brexit was not racist ne necessarily, I would disagree. I think there's a huge amount of xenophobia. And when you think of Margaret Thatcher yesterday, oh, Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> actually that's interesting. That's a really interesting slip of the tongue. Um, uh, when Theresa May said, you know, we don't want the EU national jumping the queue, yeah. is incredibly xenophobic. So the fact that, you know, so I would disagree that, you know, Racism was not part of the deal. I think it is very much part of the deal. But anyway, that was just an observation. My question was going to be, you said that um, you're in favour of the people's vote, uh, but you said the reason why Remain f failed was because they were perceived to be for the status quo, and the reason why the Leave side succeeded was because they were not happy with the status quo. So if you are going to go for a people's vote, how would we frame this question? Because at the moment, the reason why there is so much resistance, and this is why the will of the people is completely, constantly used, is because people say it's, it's undemocratic. We are not actually adhering to the will of the people. So if we are going to go for a people's vote, how yeah. do we frame yeah. this question to move forward? So there are two, two aspects. This is obviously a really important question. There are two, two aspects to the answer that I could just we touch on now. The first one is how do we frame, as you put it, the uh, calling for a people's vote? And there I think the simple answer, which could put, is, it's, it's what the trade union answer, which is when you, if you have a strike, you have a vote, you have a ballot, you decide to go on strike or not. And if you go on strike, if you then get an offer, you have another ballot to see whether that is acceptable or not. And so having a, a set, having a vote about what the deal is that's on offer builds on the democracy of the initial referendum rather than uh, undermining it or, or defying it or refusing it. So I think that the democratic argument of saying, hold on a second, you know, what's wrong with more? If, if the first referendum is fine, you know, it's, it's, it's now two and a half years We've now seen what the result is like. We now want to have a say, look at the shambles. I don't think that is a, a problem. What is a problem is the, question, the status quo question. And the difficulty here is that the campaign for a people's vote is not being led by a political party. No names need to be given. So it doesn't represent, if you say, well, no, we want to reform British democracy. So you are in control. We break the over-centralization of the British state. We're not going to have the House of Lords around our neck. We're going to unleash a democratic process out of this experience, which will give people much more control. Lessons have been learned. We're not going back. You can't offer, we as a campaign can't offer that. 
the Labour Party can offer that. Right? In Scotland, the Scottish Government can offer that. So the, the difficulty we have on that issue is that if the Labour Party stands back from that, it's very difficult to articulate those arguments in a way that, that becomes integral to what the vote is about. Yeah, sure. That's why I don't think it's a surefire win. If the EU, as you've convincingly told us, is more of a regulatory project than, than a threat to sovereignty, how do you, in, in any future campaign, how do you make regulation demotic? How do, you, how, how do you go to Leicester Covered Market and talk to people about these very technical aspects to say, these issues are actually to your benefit and they're not a threat to your identity? How do you, how do you carry that out? Well, I think we don't have the answer. I mean, I've been working... One politician I really respect on this is Caroline Lucas, who's very good and very good communicators. But the, the starting point to the answer to this is that regulation is popular. If you say to people, do you want clean... What have the EU done to us? The famous, if you like, sort of John Glees question, right? Clean beaches, you know, safe cars, you know, medicine... We know what our medicines are, right? Quieter lawnmowers, thank you very much, right? You know, we know what, what is in our sardine tin, right? This is all these sorts of things are things which we have done with the European Union. And, and then if they say, well, we can, you know, we can build 34 regulatory agencies and do it ourselves, oh, come on, you know, what's the point of that? And, and then there's another aspect of that, which is that, that people travel to Europe, they go on holiday to Europe. People, people it was very striking the, in the Channel 4 last Monday week, I don't know how many people saw the Channel 4 programme on, on Europe, which is a sort of full hour, at least it was a real discussion. And when they asked people, 20,000 survey, do they, are they in favour of, of people being able to travel backwards and forwards across the European Union, there was 64% said yes, people like freedom of movement. If you say to them, do you want to be invaded by, by sort of terrorist-loving Muslims, they're going to say no. Right? But if you say, well, do you like freedom of movement, people say yes. So I think that, that it, it's not that difficult, and, but underlying it, this, what this is delivering for us is popular. And people can understand it. And one of the ways of doing it is through stories. Through what, you know, what, what, I mean, actually, oddly enough, Theresa May, when asked about uh, what, what about a hard Brexit of medicine, said, said, I'm a diabetic and I uh, uh, get my, my medicines from Denmark. Well, everybody can understand that. And therefore, you then say, well, do you want good good medicine from Denmark. What do we, you know, you need a, you need a shared regulatory regime. So I think it's, it's uh, uh, I mean, I'm not a great popular communicator, but I think the, when you have the principles clear and the popularity is there, I don't think it's difficult to articulate arguments so people say, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, thank you for uh, such a nuanced uh, delivery of the history of the idea of, of the will of the people. Uh, and how it can actually be, it may have been here in this case, uh, a manipulative tool uh, that the public is suffering from. I'm interested in your views as to why the British public seems to be almost accepting the idea of the will of the people uh, and that we need to follow it. Uh, if you assume that the referendum question was a legitimate choice uh, and the vote, if the vote had been, say, 80-20, arguably you could say, that probably did represent the will of the people, just in quantitative terms, but it wasn't. It was about 1% made the difference. 
uh, but yet it was interpreted as the will of the people. I wonder whether you think that the history and the culture, the political culture in this country of winner takes all uh, in most elections, like parliamentary election, for example, may have influenced the way the British, British public has been willing to accept the idea that a 1% difference in a referendum vote on a question like this represented the will of the yeah. people which we must accept? So this is a very interesting question. I think it could be related to winner-takes-all politics, but I don't think that's the answer. So I think a number of different things here. One of the qualities of the success, when I was talking about the organization of consent, the historic organization of consent, is one definition of what that is about is what sociologists, political sociologists call loser's consent, which is that when people lose elections, even when it's very unfair, they accept it and get on with it and think, well, you know, uh, they, they accept the legitimacy of the outcome. And if you take the Scottish referendum, Scottish independence referendum, which the people who advocated it lost, but um, there was a, it was a good referendum. First of all, the argument was very well put. The people that were advocating it were advocating it. It was, you know, they wanted it to happen. Uh, and they were the government. They would have delivered it. They had a plan of how it should be delivered. And my view of what happened in Scotland is, I think that a majority, I'd say, I can't give you the citizen, but I think about 55 to, a bit over 55% of the people of Scotland want independence. And about 15%, maybe 55, 60% people want it. And about 15% of them think not yet. So the argument was one, but they were quite canny. They thought with the English against it, we haven't got the currencies an issue. There's some real issues here. We're not ready yet. So it feels like a different country. They think of themselves as a different country, but they, so they had, they had a really, they had a good reference. They came to an outcome which everybody accepted was legitimate well argued, well put, honestly set out, passionately fought, and there was a result, and everyone accepted that outcome. So, uh, and, and nobody talks about the will of the people. <laughs> they don't need to. <laughs> it was an outcome. It was a fair, large, significant majority, and there you are. So the will of the people has come in because, in a sense, people don't accept the outcome. Because if, if Brexit had was what it promised to be, so in the paper, um, people would have, let me give you an example. In, during the Falklands War, most people didn't want fighting until British troops landed. And then at that point, when everybody said, okay, now it's happening, they supported it, 70, 75%. So there's a history here of people saying, I don't really like what's going on here. And they say, OK, well, that's the outcome. Let's do it. And, and if Brexit was what it promised it would be, that's what would have happened. And everybody would have said, well, it was a narrow result, but now we're doing it. But actually, it didn't know what they were doing. It doesn't work. It can't work. The offer was, was, was a misplaced and inappropriate offer. And people just didn't shift and I think one of the reasons for this is is quite uh, I don't know quite how to put this for the first time in their lives many people not in London which has a mayor had a referendum but in without London were given a real decision to take an executive decision if you like 
And quite a lot of people didn't make up their minds till, you know, often the day. But once they took the decision, they thought, that's the decision I've taken. And so they, people are just sticking with their decision. It's remarkable that the, there's a shift towards remaining, but it's because people that didn't vote are breaking two to one to remain. So the big shift that's taking place of those people that, you know, the turnout, they say the turnout was high, it was 72%. It was 84% in Scotland with over 90% registration. And historically, from the, in the 1950s, we had 80% turnouts in British elections. So it wasn't that high a turnout. One third of the population didn't vote. A lot of people said plague on your houses, especially young people. And they are, they are breaking in that fashion. But people, once they voted, didn't, didn't they took that view and they haven't shifted from that view. And I don't think that's because of first past the post. It's because uh, uh, the, 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 the whole issue has been misplaced. And you had a core of kind of English nationalism, which is, is just very deep. And, uh, and it's like, I don't want to be governed by these people and many people from Luxembourg and who are they? And I don't want to be a vassal and stuff like that. And it's an unmovable prejudice, especially among the older generation. Okay, well, I'm, I'm afraid, uh, for, I'm sorry if those of you wanted to get in with a question. Is there, is there a question? Is there, another, is there a woman? Another one? Was there one more? So, okay, I mean, we are sort of no? out of time. Okay. I'm, I'm a, We've got to go. Yeah, I fear, we're, I fear we're out of time. I'm sort of tempted to say, sort of, um, stock up on your sardines, man your lawnmowers and fight them on the clean beaches. <laughs> um, but uh, Anthony's lecture was much more nuanced than that, as Van said. It was a very nuanced, yes. thoughtful I'm lecture. I'm very worried that people think it was nuanced. I didn't want to be... <laughs> no. I mean, uh, uh, there was this thing when, when George Bush was asked about invading Iraq in the preparation of the Iraq war, and he said very cheerfully, we don't do nuance. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, at least uh, that's clear. So I don't want to be too nuanced. Anyway, can, can I, before you go, can I ask you to thank Anthony Barnett and the usual way for very local. Thank you, Anthony.